Hello, friends, and welcome to the Stats of War podcast, a half-hour deep dive into the numbers behind the numbers. I'm your host, Parker Fleming, resident sports analytics wonk at Frogs of War, and today I'm flying solo. I'll tell you about flying solo this week. Last week, Jamie was gracious enough to help me get the podcast started, and we did a little baseball preview. It went pretty well. I've wanted to get into the podcasting game, as it were, for a while now, and the stars have aligned for me to start my own show. Last week did reveal something, though, and that something is that I am not as good on the mic with a co-host, especially as I'm just starting out this whole podcasting process. In an ideal world, I'll have some guest contributors, both from the Frogs of War staff and elsewhere, but I think that I'm a few recordings away from handling guests, preferring to get my feet under me first. So, in an effort to focus my thoughts and deliver a better auditory product, one free of ums, ers, and ahs, I'm trying out the monologue style for a bit. To frame this podcast, I am employing a strict imposition of a strictly flexible format. Each Monday night, I'll discuss the five or so numbers capturing the story and results of TCU athletics in the past week. My list will be far from inclusive, and I am decidedly not doing any daily, news-breaking, this-just-in style of journalism. This podcast will be a slow break from the hustle and bustle of the 24-hour news cycle, a zooming in on minutia, trivia, and marginalia about sports with an analytical mindset. For the record, if you'd like your fix of that sweet, hard-hitting, up-to-the-minute journalism, Jamie and Melissa will be on the very, this very same podcast feed later this week to break down TCU news, stories, and results. For now, though, let's amble through the past week. I'll start with our five numbers for this week. Plus 3.8, plus 7.7, 7, 91.5%, 41, and negative 7.6. We start this week on a happy note with TCU baseball coming off a 2-1 and weekend tournament against three of the premier baseball programs in the country and boasting an eight-run route of the current number one team, Vanderbilt. Our first number is 3.38 FIP minus ERA. Fielding independent pitching, FIP, converts the three outcomes most under a pitcher's control, home runs, walks, and strikeouts, referred to many referred to by many as the three true outcomes of baseball, into an ERA-style number, usually in that familiar scale of low single-digit numbers, roughly 2 to 5 for most regularly employed pitchers. FIP weights home runs by 13, walks by 3, and then subtra- subtracts, two minus, subtracts 2 times strikeouts, all divided by innings pitched. Why do this? Why do we need this conversion? That's a great question, and the answer starts with ERA. Earned run average is a straightforward, no-nonsense stat. How many earned runs, how many innings, and boom, here's a number. The problem with ERA, though, is that it lacks context. ERA can't tell us if an infield hit should have been an out, or if an outfielder took a bad route to a ball he should have caught, or if a relay throw to the plate was just a fraction of a degree too wide, which resulted in a missed tag and an earned run. ERA lacks a lot of nuance about a pitcher's performance, and while it can be helpful in initial diagnostics, it fails to robustly provide meaningful grounds for inference of a pitcher's performance. On the other hand, FIP tells us just about what the pitcher controlled. It doesn't reflect balls hit into the field. It doesn't reflect which fielder executed in the right moment, but instead it focuses on a pitcher's command, walks and strikeouts, and the ability to limit power, home runs. So with FIP and ERA, we have one measure of pitcher performance, isolated, and we have a measure of an entire team's run prevention performance. FIP is useful to us for evaluating pitchers, and we'll do that this week. 
Additionally, through subtracting ERA from FIP, we get a nice measure of how context mattered in a pitcher's performance. If ERA dwarfs FIP, a pitcher got no help from his fielders. And if FIP sits higher than ERA, then the pitcher owes his fielders a round of drinks. There are, of course, plenty of opportunities for nuance in that interpretation, but that is the skin and bones. So, examining TCU baseball's 2-in-1 weekend, we can evaluate and contextualize TCU's pitching performance. TCU's ERA in three games is 2.42, two runs at eight inning Friday, three earned on Saturday in nine innings, and two on Sunday. And their FIP was 2.8, which is .38 runs higher than ERA. The lone home run given up by Nick Lodolo on Friday night boosts that considerably. In such a small sample, TCU's FIP would have been 2.39 without it, a number below the ERA, and much more in line with our expectations of TCU pitching. In 12.2 innings, the trio of Nick Lodolo, Jared Janzak, and Brandon Williamson, TCU starters, posted a 3.52 FIP, and if you exclude the lone home run, that comes down to a 2.46 FIP. The bullpen did its job, posting a 2.28 FIP with 12 strikeouts and 13.1 innings of relief. The bats matter, but pitching has been and will be the backbone of TCU's program. This FIP measure and its associated distance from ERA will be a stat worth monitoring as the numbers level out. When do the numbers level out in college baseball? The convergence rate in Major League Baseball has been discussed. I've heard a rule of thumb is that nothing matters until Memorial Day, but I wonder what mark of statistical significance there is for college baseball. That's worth exploring. But anyway, as the stats converge, at whatever rate they may converge, FIP distance from ERA will be a great baseline measure of TCU's pitching performance unhitched from fielding execution. I'd like to discuss the other side of the baseball equation with the second number this week, the offense. 7.76 is our second number, and that is strikeout percent minus walk percent. After a short scare of inactivity on Friday night, TCU's bats woke up Saturday and Sunday, scoring 19 runs in the final two games of the MLB4 tournament, both wins. TCU didn't hit any home runs this weekend, but six doubles and a triple got more than enough scoring for two wins. That Friday night scoreless game looked like this season might be an extension of last season's hitting mediocrity. Saturday and Sunday disparaged the notion, though, and TCU had double-digit hits in both games. Only 19% of TCU's total hits were for extra bases. That's not bad, per se, but it is worth examining, especially in light of no home runs. Early in the season, as numbers numbers and outcomes are volatile, I try to avoid statements of a definitive nature about quality. What's more important for me so early is a little more nuance, a little more under the hood. Strikeout percentage minus walk percentage is a metric often used to assess pitcher control, and uh, I'll admit, I like it in that capacity. I also like it as a fringe hitting stat, especially early on, and especially coupled with the singles-heavy weekend performance the Frogs just had. TCU's hitters are seeing the ball, but how well are they seeing the ball? Now, this is in three games, mind you, but the Horned Frogs are striking out at a rate 7.7 percentage points higher than they are walking. This could be compounded by a few things, opposing pitcher quality for one, but it gives a nice initial test for a baseball team's eye, their pitch selection, and, and plate discipline. As long as that number is in the single digits, I consider it a non-issue. TCU was putting the bat on the ball well, and they weren't swinging too egregiously on the whole. This is a nice early season metric to keep an eye on as stats are converging, much like the aforementioned difference between ERA and FIP. 
as it can identify a red flag should the team demonstrate an obvious weakness. Let's shift to college basketball for our next two numbers. 91.5% was the maximum win probability TCU basketball had versus Kansas. With just over two minutes left, the Horn Frogs, after a 13-point run, had the ball and a four-point lead over Kansas at home last Monday. At that moment in time, two minutes and 10 seconds left in the second half with a four-point lead, exactly, TCU had a 91.5% win probability, one that had been climbing from just 6.3% a mere five minutes earlier when the Jayhawks had a nine-point lead with about seven minutes left in the game. That doesn't mean TCU had a 91.5% chance to win the game, as these numbers don't take into account the runs and swings and on-court happenings of an individual game. But what that means is 91.5% of the time a team was in that situation, up four with two minutes and 10 seconds left at home, they won. The Jayhawks' minimum minimum win probability of 8.5% ranked only 314th among games this season for minimum win probability in a win. I went to check the top 100 list, provided, of course, by the ever-useful Ken Palm, and the list was topped by the Marquette Creighton Barnburner from earlier this year. Creighton was down to a 0.5% win probability and pulled off a few miracles, namely Marquette throwing the ball away and not starting the clock on an inbound, and they came away victorious in the ensuing overtime. The TCU-Kansas game ranked 224th in excitement, according to Ken Palm, which also uses comeback and win probabilities to determine the volatility and uncertainty of outcomes in basketball games. TCU finds itself in the list of top 100 of the excitement rankings as well. The loss in Norman to Oklahoma, in which TCU had the ball, the lead, and a 77.8 win probability with a minute left and came up short, was on that list. The Horn Frogs have been competitive in all but two games this season, but their inability to close down the stretch has been on display as well. It is due in part to injuries and transfers, but TCU all season has lacked that closeout, end-of-the-game guy. TCU used their fourth different starting lineup on Saturday to fill in for the injured Quatnoy, but beyond that, the bench is thin and gets thinner really quick. As the season wraps up in order to make a run, the starters are going to have to catch fire and carry the burden to close these late-game high-probability wins. The end of basketball season insight brings us to the fourth number of today's podcast. But before that, I'll take a little break for a brief message and be back with the final three numbers of the week. All right, welcome back. We are on our fourth number for this week, which is 41. TCU's rank in both Ken Palm and the net. For the first time all season, the metrics agree on TCU's place in the nation. At the time of this recording, and pending results in the game in Stillwater Monday night, Ken Palm thinks TCU is the eighth best team in the Big 12, and the net ranks TCU as the same. Of course, the Ken Palm definition of best is approximated by most efficient in terms of what happened on the court. The net, although it has some efficiency measures, claims to be more about resume and defines best as most deserving. I wondered at the announcement of the net whether this would be just a backdoor approximation of Ken Palm's rankings for the NCAA, but with a couple of weeks left before conference tournaments, it looks like these are more or less similar rankings. There are some discrepancies. For example, the net has the 25-1 and Houston Cougars 14 spots higher than Ken Palm, 4th instead of 18th, 
And there are a couple of aberrations like Nevada and UCF, five or, sp- five or six spots higher in the net than in Ken Palm. On the whole, though, it looks like the net and Ken Palm are both measuring the same things the same way, at least in terms of a grouping tool used for seeding and analysis and comparison in college basketball. Now, how that actually influences seeding remains to be seen. The midseason bracket reveal that the NCAA has begun doing annually did not feature the top 16 teams from the net ranking, but the rankings do provide pretty clear tiers of programs. As for TCU's tournament resume, the Iowa State win went a long way, but that Oklahoma loss Saturday would have gone just that much further. TCU is firmly on the bubble, but I'm worried about being the eighth best team in the conference, according to the NCAA's seeding metric. The Big 12, in its current form, since conference realignment, has never sent eight teams to the tournament, and so to feel comfortable about its chances, TCU is going to have to differentiate itself from Oklahoma, Baylor, and Texas. It lost a valuable opportunity to do so on Saturday, but fortunately still has three Tier A games or quad one in the parlance of the net, remaining this season. Recent projections have TCU in the 8-9 to seed range. I'd prefer to be on the lower end of that ranking and to stay out of the 7-10 to range altogether. That game is a bit of a hornet's nest, uh, both the 7-10 to game and the 8-9 to game, because I feel like those are the most under-seeded teams consistently every year. But... The good news is TCU's seed looks to be extremely sensitive to the remainders of TCU's schedule and their performance in the Big 12 tournament. For the final number this week, I turn our attention to the gridiron. I'm conducting an excessively thorough retrospective on TCU special teams last year, more out of off-season longing for football than anything else. You may have read my analysis of TCU punting a couple weeks back. If not, you certainly should. It has graphs and everything. The football number for this week, though, concerns field goals. Minus 7.683. Expected points lost for TCU field goals over the season. Before I contextualize this disparity between expected and actual points, I'll have to walk you through my process in creating this metric. All of the research in this offseason special team series is of my own design. I'm using play-by-play data scraped from the internet and tinkering around with different modes of analysis. For field goals, I used a probit regression of field goal success on distance and game state. That is, how far the field goal was, whether the team was up or down in scoring margin, and the time of the game broken down into eight subquarters. Probit regression is just fancy stat speak for estimating the probability of a binary outcome, making or missing a field goal, given a set of situation characteristics. My results will be more detailed in the forthcoming post, but I found that for an average team, a one extra yard gained the play before a field goal, in effect, shortening the field goal distance by one yard, is associated with a 1.7% increase in field goal probability. And in some instances, that swing can be as much as 10 percentage points. Talk about football being a game of inches, am I right? So, with those expected success numbers calculated, I assigned every field goal a team attempted excluding extra points, a predicted probability, and multiplied that by three to get an expected point value for each field goal kicked this year. Then I subtracted that from the actual points a team gained or failed to gain on an individual field goal. Adding those up across the season, you get a number about points gained or lost due to field goal performance. I won't spoil my posts, but the list surprised me a little bit. 
TCU specifically came in at 119th in the nation, 11th worst in expected points lost, losing 7.683 points over the course of the season. TCU kicked 21 field goals this season, missing eight, a 61.9% completion rate. 61.9% is about 12 percentage points below the a the national average of 73.47. TCU attempted field goals of an average length of 34.7 yards, 80th longest in the nation, or a little bit below average for the nation. For those of you keeping score at home, you had the 10 yards for the end zone and about four yards for the holder. So TCU kicked from the 20-yard line on average, a mean indicative of a fairly conservative kicking strategy. 50% of TCU field goal attempts landed in the 29 to 41 yard range, which is the 15 to the 26 yard line. Seven points doesn't seem like much, but ask any coach in the nation if they'd like a little bit more than two field goals added back to any point of the season, and I'm sure none of them would decline. Do be on the lookout for my full field goal analysis, as it describes the entire college football landscape and examines exactly how each field goal miss affected the outcomes of TCU games. All right, there you have it, our five numbers for the week. We looked under the hood at TCU baseball's offense and pitching over the course of their solid weekend, and we looked at how recent performances have affected TCU basketball in their pursuit of an NCAA tournament bid. Finally, I threw some expected field goals numbers I've been working on at you, demonstrating one area in which TCU football struggled last season. This has been the Stats of War podcast, and again, I am your host, Parker Fleming. I'd appreciate your thoughts and feedback on Twitter. I log in a couple times a week to at Parker underscore F-O-W, and go check out everything we have going on the site, Frogs of War, as baseball season kicks off and the stakes in basketball season get even higher. I'm looking forward to talking to you next week. Be well, and go Frogs.